Good morning. My name is Chad Ragsdale, and I'm a professor at Ozark Christian College and also a member of this congregation, and uh, really thrilled uh, with the opportunity to preach for you this week. We're going to be in John chapter 12 today. And of all the important questions that we may ask ourselves throughout our life, of all the important questions that we may ask ourselves throughout our life, I can't think of a more important question than the question of who is Jesus anyway? Who is Jesus anyway? Because not only does my answer to that question affect my eternal destiny, the answer to that question also affects the direction of my life right now. Who is, just who is Jesus anyway? So it's an important question. It's the type of question that we would expect to talk about at church. It's the type of question that we should expect to be able to answer at church. But it's also a question that we so routinely get wrong. Even those of us in church attempting to follow Jesus with our lives, we so routinely get this question wrong. Who is Jesus anyway? There is no figure in all of human history that has so captured the imagination of men quite like Jesus had. There is also no figure in human history who has been so consistently misunderstood as Jesus has been. So who is Jesus anyway? In the Gospel of John... The fourth gospel, this is really the dominant question that runs throughout the entire book. This is the framing question for the entire gospel of John. Who is this Jesus anyway? And people answer this question in radically different ways all the way through this gospel. If we just take a tour, a really quick tour through the gospel of John, this will become really very apparent. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist is out doing what John the Baptist does. He's out there baptizing people, he's preaching, um, and he sees Jesus walking towards him, and he says in this very memorable line in John's gospel, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That's the very first chapter. But then later on in that same chapter, Philip, who is one of Jesus' first disciples, He goes and he shares with Nathanael, another man. He shares with Nathanael, hey, we found him. We found the guy that we were looking for. We found the guy that we've been expecting, that we've been looking for all these years. We finally found him. And Nathanael is a little bit skeptical. Nathanael says, yeah, well, what's his name? And Philip's like, his name's Jesus. He's this guy. He's from Nazareth. And he's he's come. He's finally here. And and Nathanael's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on just a second. Did you say Nazareth? Because... Anybody who's everybody knows that nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. He doesn't exactly share Philip, and certainly not John the Baptist's, optimism concerning who this Jesus actually is. In John chapter 3, we have a very respected teacher by the name of Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night, and he's intrigued by Jesus. He wants to know who are you really? We see you doing all these things. We hear you teaching all these things. We are curious. We want to know who you are. And Jesus answers by saying, among many other things, whoever believes in me will not perish. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. And in that moment, Nicodemus, at least at that point, is pretty skeptical about who this Jesus was. In the very next chapter, though, Jesus is having another conversation, only this time it's with a person who is completely the opposite of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, respected Jewish teacher. In John chapter 4, you have Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And he says to this Samaritan woman at the well, among many other things, he says, I can offer you living water so that you will thirst no more. And this Samaritan woman responds in a very different way than Nicodemus does. The Samaritan woman responds by running back into town and telling all of her friends and telling all of her family, come, come and meet the man who told me everything that I've ever done. Come and meet the man that we've been hoping for. Come and meet the man that we've been expecting. Who is this Jesus anyway? In John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people. And the people respond, I think understandably, they respond by saying, he's finally here. The prophet that Moses promised centuries ago, he's finally here. And they want to make him king right then and there on the spot. By the end of John chapter 6, some of those very same people are so disillusioned and disappointed by the things that Jesus was teaching that some of those very people, many of those very people, left him. In John chapter 7, Jesus' own brothers confront him. And as brothers tend to be, they were skeptical. And as brothers tend to do, they dared Jesus. They say, okay, Jesus, you think you're big stuff. Anyone who wants to be a public figure doesn't do these sorts of things in private. If you, if you really want to become great, you need to go down to Jerusalem and make a big show of yourself so that everyone will see you. Later on in that same chapter, John chapter 7, some of the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed and a Samaritan. Not a compliment. While other people, in the very next verse, other people say, but look at what he's doing. Look at what he's able to accomplish. Surely Surely this is the Christ. This is the one that we've been hoping for. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. He heals a man. And Jesus asks this man that he's healed, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this formerly blind man gets down on his knees and he proceeds to say, I do believe, and he worships Jesus. He worships him. And then in the very next chapter, in John chapter 10, the Jewish leader is getting very, very frustrated with Jesus at this point, just really trying to answer the question, who is this guy anyway? Who is Jesus anyway? They just come right out and ask him, tell us plainly so that we'd know, who are you? And then when Jesus does tell them plainly, when Jesus does give them the answer, they turn around and try to stone him. It's the question that runs throughout the entire Gospel of John. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus anyway? And people are coming up with radically different conclusions about who he is. And I was reading through this text the last couple weeks, and I started to ask myself the question, if I had lived during this time, what conclusions about Jesus would I have come to? How would I have answered the question, who is Jesus anyway? How would you have answered that question? I mean, imagine this. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you imagine that this story got out? Do you imagine that people started hearing about this story about a man who had been dead for four days? And Jesus says, walks right up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. Do you think that you probably would have heard that story? And then Jesus has the gall to say, I am the resurrection and the life. That's John chapter 11. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 12, the very beginning of the chapter, it says that Jesus is back at Lazarus' home having dinner. 
I imagine that was a lively dinner conversation. And in the midst of this dinner, Lazarus's sister, Mary, she breaks open a bottle of very, very expensive perfume, and she proceeds to anoint Jesus' feet with this perfume. This is more than just a, a symbolic action. By her doing this, that she was announcing that this is the anointed one. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah that we had been hoping for. This is the Messiah that we have been expecting. So how would you have responded? What would you have concluded about who Jesus was? Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where the atmosphere, the environment was like charged with electricity and charged with excitement and anticipation. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I've been, I've been in numerous situations like that through the years. One that I remember really clearly was back in 1996. Um, I, I grew up just outside of Chicago, and so I was a huge Chicago's Bull, Chicago Bulls fan. I still am. And in 1996, it was, it was this really important season because it was a season, you know, Michael Jordan had just come back from a couple years attempting to play baseball, of all things. Um, so he had come back from playing baseball, and the Chicago Bulls were so dominant that year that they won more games than anyone has ever won before or since. I mean, they were just dominating the competition. The entire season seemed like a coronation. The entire season seemed like an inevitability, that the championship was going to be won. And so during the finals that year, the Bulls opened up the United Center, where they play their games, um, to fans to come watch the road games. So you could go to the United Center along with 18,000 people and watch the games that they were playing on the road in the NBA Finals. So uh, myself, along with several of my friends, we went up and we watched one of these road games. They were playing the Seattle Supersonics before Oklahoma City stole them. And, and, uh, and so we, we went, and we're surrounded by thousands of people. And we're all cheering, and we're all... Just, the excitement is almost, you know, tangible. The anticipation. We all knew what was going to happen. There was really no doubt as to what was going to happen. And I imagine that Jerusalem at this time in John chapter 12, that that is just a fraction of the type of excitement and anticipation and sense of inevitability that existed in Jerusalem in John chapter 12. And so imagine, it's during the Passover anyway. John chapter 12 is during the Passover, and this is, of all the times during, on the Jewish calendar, this is the most charged season in the Jewish calendar, full of all sorts of nationalistic expectations and hopes. It was just a really charged environment. And Jesus decides in John chapter 12 to enter into Jerusalem riding on the back of a colt of a donkey, which was a clear indication from the Old Testament. This was a clear sign. This was a fulfilled prophecy that the Messiah would come riding on the back of a donkey. Jesus was sending out a clear signal in that moment. And the people in Jerusalem, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. You know how I know that? Because they lined the streets on either side, and they started singing the words of Psalm 118 to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew exactly what was happening. They knew exactly the inevitability that this was the king who is finally arriving in Jerusalem after all these centuries, after all these years of waiting and expectation, it had finally come. How do you think you would have responded in that moment? I know exactly how I would have responded. I would have been just alongside of those crowds, saying the same types of things, with the same types of hopes, with the same types of anticipation and expectation. 
I probably would have been like this group of Gentiles that we meet in John chapter 12, verse 20. If, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there and follow along with me. In John, just to set the context a little bit further, in John chapter 12, verse 19, the Jewish leaders have seen and observed everything that's going on. Everything from the anointing at Lazarus' house that I was talking about to this grand triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders were seeing this, they were observing this, and they become very frustrated. And they say in John chapter 12, verse 19, see, this is getting us nowhere. The entire world is going after him. And then as if to illustrate this or confirm this, in the very next verse, verse 20, it says, now there were some Greeks, non-Jews, among those who went up to worship at the feast. The feast there is the Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, these are non-Jewish people who had apparently come to Jerusalem during the Passover to celebrate and to worship. These were not fully converts to Judaism, but they were people who were fascinated and drawn to worship the God of Israel. Okay? And we're not really sure why they wanted to see Jesus. The text doesn't really tell us for sure why they wanted to see Jesus, but I think I, I, think I know pretty well why. They wanted to see Jesus. I think that they could see this wave growing bigger and bigger and bigger. They had observed all these things that were happening. They had a sense that something great was about to happen with Jesus. Everyone was announcing that this was the king that they'd been hoping for, that they'd been waiting for. And I think that they were curious, as non-Jewish people, I think they were curious, what is our role in this king's kingdom going to be? Are we going to even have a place in this kingdom? All we know is that something about them coming to Jesus, something about them asking for this meeting, triggered an alarm in Jesus' mind. Where he realizes in this moment, my time has finally come. The hour has arrived. The reason why I came to this world is now. But Jesus also realized in that moment that what was going to come next was not going to live up to everyone's expectations. What was going to come next was not exactly going to live up to all the hopes and all the dreams and all the expectations of the crowds. So in verse 22, here's what we read. Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. I tell you the truth. In Greek, this is a double amen, 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 which is sort of like a teacher in class saying, this is going to be on the test. It's that important. And when I read this text, for some reason, when I read this text this week, my mind went back to the, to the magi, the three wise men, who were also Gentile men who were seeking an audience with the new king. And they traveled a long way to meet this new king. And I, I, I like to think of them on this trip, you know, thinking about the king's palace and where the king, this new king was going to be living and where, what this new king would look like and wondering, you know, kind of worrying about their presence. Are our gifts going to be sufficient? Are our gifts going to be enough for this new king? And kind of making fun of the guy that brought myrrh, of all things. You know, you couldn't just buy something off the registry. You had to bring myrrh. Um, you know, and they finally show up and the new king is in this little you know, tiny, insignificant village called Bethlehem. 
and the new king is lying in an animal's feeding trough. I can't help but think of those expectations as I read about these Gentiles in this text. Here they are coming to this king, this man who they assume is going to be the next king of Israel, with a question on their mind. And what they get in response from Jesus is an elementary farming lesson about planting seeds and producing a harvest. You know, compared to the fruit that a seed can produce, the seed itself is pretty plain. The seed itself is pretty small, but a seed in and of itself has almost miraculous potential for life. A seed on its own has almost miraculous potential for life, and Jesus makes the very obvious uh, observation that, that the potential of that seed can only be realized if the seed is sacrificed, if the seed is let go of and placed in the ground. The fruit can only come about if the seed dies. But Jesus isn't done. He says in verse 25, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who saves me. But now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came into this hour. Father, glorify your name. In John's gospel, we meet a very vulnerable Jesus. Yes, John's gospel tells us things about Jesus, like, for instance, that he was the word of God made flesh dwelling among us. It says very grand statements about Jesus, but John's gospel also introduces us to a Jesus who is hungry and thirsty, and vulnerable, and tired, and lonely, and even, as this text says, deeply troubled. The word here actually means that he was stirred up inside. Jesus wasn't just some emotionless Buddha sitting underneath a tree. When Jesus reflected on the pain and the suffering that lay before him, it says he was deeply troubled deeply troubled. The same exact word is used in the previous chapter, in John chapter 11, when Jesus shows up at Lazarus' house to discover that Lazarus had died. It says that Jesus was deeply troubled over the death of a friend. Have you ever realized, or have you ever thought, paused to ponder, that death is not a natural thing to Jesus? Death is not something to be peacefully accepted as being in the natural course of things. I think Jesus understood much better than we ever can understand just how unnatural death really is. Death isn't something to be peacefully accepted. It's something to be destroyed. But Jesus also realized that the only way for death to be destroyed, the only way for death to be overcome, is if he himself would be sacrificed, if he himself would give up his life. He didn't come for the miracles. He didn't come for the parables and the teachings. He didn't come for the adoration of the crowds. He didn't come for the accumulation of power. It was for this and this purpose that Jesus came into the world. He came to die so that you and I may have life. This hour, this moment was the reason why he came into the world. But this didn't exactly live up to the people's expectations. The next verse says this, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I think anticipating the resurrection. I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that was there heard it and said that it thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for the judgment of the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted from the earth, talking about the crucifixion, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Interesting, with the Gentiles already there seeking an audience with him. It's in my death that I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now we come back to these Gentiles who had wanted to meet with Jesus. He says, again, all men will be drawn to me, but, the, but not in the way that they were expecting. He would be lifted up, he would be crucified, and he would die a horrible death. The triumphal entry that had just happened was a funeral procession. I think that the words of Isaiah, the words that were read just a moment ago in worship, I think these words from Isaiah must have been playing like a soundtrack in the back of Jesus' mind at this moment. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He was despised. Catch the contrast? He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Think about that seed going into the ground and producing fruit. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, the harvest. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of the soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, anticipating the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Listen, listen, listen. The gospel may be simple, but it is never superficial. The gospel may be free, but it is never cheap. Jesus knew at that moment that the only means for our salvation was for him to give up his own life. And the crowd objects, which is typical in the Gospels. Whenever Jesus tells the truth about who he is, the crowds typically will object. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They come back to this question that we started with. Who is Jesus anyway? Who is Jesus anyway? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. As I, as I close out this morning, there's really only two very basic things that I want to say. The two things that I want to say, first of all, is this. We don't get Jesus how we want him to be. We get Jesus how we need him to be. We don't get Jesus how we want him to be. We get Jesus how we need him to be. This king was not the king or not the type of king that the crowds were hoping for or expecting. It's not the king that they thought they had been promised. Is this the type of king that we were hoping for? The king who sacrifices, the king who dies. 
The crowds were hoping for a shabby second-rate king, the kind of king that would help them to get along better in this world. And I've got to ask myself the question, is that the type of king that I want? The type of king that'll just help me to get along better in this world? The type of plastic Jesus who's easy, easily manipulated and managed? The type of Jesus that ultimately is very, very small? Listen, Jesus came to set us free in every way imaginable. Jesus came to have victory in all things, but that victory only was achieved through sacrifice and through death. Jesus did not come, hear me clearly, Jesus did not come to allow us to get along better in this world. He did not come to allow us to get along better in this world. Jesus died so that we can overcome this world. This may not be the type of king that we expect or the type of king that we want, but this is most definitely the type of king that we need. The second thing that I want to say is this. The life that follows Jesus looks like Jesus. The the life that follows Jesus looks like Jesus. Now, I know this isn't profound and I know it's not new. As a matter of fact, I was sitting in this congregation last week having this exact same thought. When you have a sermon series, as long as this sermon series that we're in, where we're just talking about the the teaching or the message of Jesus, you are bound to repeat yourself. And it's just, I started to reflect on so many of these messages are resounding with a similar theme, a similar idea. The idea of sacrifice. The idea of humility. The idea of making ourselves less so that Christ could be more. And I just thought, you know, it's no surprise that we would repeat ourselves so much because this is the dominant message of Jesus. This is the dominant message of the gospel. And Jesus himself repeats this message over and over in the gospels because we're so thick-headed. Because of our tendency to resist this message. Because of our tendency to, to become deaf to this message. It needs to be repeated over and over and over again. Because I am so willful to ignore it. The life that follows Jesus looks like Jesus. Now, when you, when you pause to think about it, back in verse 25, Jesus says, The man who loves the, his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me follows me, and where I am, my servant also will be. The, my Father will honor the one who serves me. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. When you pause to think about it, this world gives us a lot of different answers to this question. What does success look like? You know, if you answer the question, what does success look like? This world has an endless number of answers to that question. What does a successful life look like? But Jesus' answer runs totally counter to everything that we assume about success. We are beings who are created to worship. You know that? We are beings who were created to worship. For humans, worship comes as naturally to us as breathing or eating. You have never met another human being who has not worshipped something or someone. Worship is simply organizing our lives around something or around someone. You, in worship, we give worth to something else, and in turn, we receive, we receive value and meaning and purpose from that worship. Everyone worships. It's not a question of, of if you worship, it's a question of who you worship or what you worship. 
And we have, a tr- we have problems with idolatry. We have problems about putting our worship in the wrong place, don't we? I was on a trip to the Philippines several years ago, and, and on this trip, we had the opportunity to go visit the poorest people group in the entire nation of the Philippines. They're called the Bajau people. And um, we, we went to these people. They're sea gypsies, so they don't stay in one place for very long. They just erect very temporary huts, and they live there for a while, and they move on. And so we went to them, and we were explaining the gospel to them. And my mom was in one of these huts talking to this family, and she noticed there was a table um, in, their, in their tiny hut, and there were only two items on this table, which to us would have just looked like cheap pieces of china. There was a bowl and there was a plate. And my mom asked them, well, what are those things? And they, they got very hushed. They said, well, those are our gods. We worship those things. That Those two things were the idols that this family had set up. The idols in my life may be a little bit more sophisticated, but they are, they are just as powerless. An idol is an object of worship. An icon, on the other hand, what an icon is, an icon is a picture or an image that helps focus our worship. It's like a pair of glasses. An icon helps us to see clearly the object that we worship. An icon, uh, an icon helps us to see clearly what success in life looks like, what happiness in life looks like, what purpose in life looks like. And if you think about it, the world around you every day is surrounded by literally thousands of different icons, images that this world sets up and tells us this is what the good life looks like. This is what purpose and meaning in your life looks like. All these competing icons. Like, for instance, you go to the cathedral of the shopping mall, and you might see an icon that looks sort of like this. Now, they say that the best mannequins are mannequins without faces. Truly, they say that. And you know the reason why. If you see a mannequin without a face, you imagine yourself wearing that same clothing. And so you go to the, shop, you go to the cathedral of the shopping mall, and you see an icon that looks sort of like that. What a mannequin tells us is that if you want to be successful in life, success in life involves keeping up appearances. Keeping up appearances. That's what success in life really looks like. Keeping up appearances on the surface. If you go to the cathedral of the stadium, you might see an icon that looks like this. This was just given out this last week. Um, You go to the cathedral of the stadium, you might see an icon that looks like a trophy or a championship banner. And a trophy reminds us that success is found in achievement. Success is found in victory on the playing field. There are winners in life and there are losers in life. And if you want to be success, you want to be a winner. If you go to the cathedral of the business world, you might see an icon that looks like this. A dollar sign reminds us that success is found in accumulation. Get as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and the world will label you a success. You go to the cathedral of the university or the college, and you might see an icon like this. A piece of paper that literally costs pennies to produce, but thousands of dollars to earn. And the icon of the diploma tells us that success in life, purpose in life, is found in the accumulation of knowledge. Gaining as much knowledge as possible. Now the church, on the other hand, all those images are fake. The church, on the other hand, has always had a very surprising, a very shocking, a very scandalous icon of its own. The cross. Each one of the other icons that we mention are in constant state of change. The mannequin's clothes change with the seasons, constantly offering us a different standard to live up to. The trophies of this year soon to become just relics of the past collecting dust. 
The stuff that we accumulate quickly loses its newness and excitement and finds its way into the trash bin. What passes for knowledge today quickly gets surpassed by new, new ideas tomorrow. But the cross, the cross remains the same. And it's no less shocking and it's no less powerful today than when Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. The community that follows Jesus doesn't just worship the one who went to the cross and defeated it. The community that follows Jesus also adopts the lifestyle of the cross. The cross tells us that this is what the good life looks like. The cross tells us that this is ultimately what success looks like. The cross tells us that this is ultimately what purpose looks like. The cross doesn't just remind us of how we go about getting saved. The cross reminds us of the true purpose for our lives. It stands in opposition to all of those other ideas, to all those other suggestions, to all those other icons in our world that tell us what achievement and what success and what purpose look like. And the cross reminds us that the only way to truly live, the only way to truly live is by dying. The only way to truly have success is through sacrifice. And the only way to truly produce a harvest, the only way to truly reach our potential is through getting over ourselves, giving up ourselves, and giving ourselves over to the one who went to the cross on our behalf. This is what lasting success looks like to Jesus. And this is the type of life that he has called us to follow him in.